2: Hello, and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Center for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Today, we have a bit more of a debate format for the podcast. We're talking about the issue of the moment, artificial intelligence, whether it's going to kill us all or improve life immeasurably for everyone on Earth. Those are basically the only two options, as I'm sure you you all know. To discuss that, we've got together our head of tech at the Center for Policy Studies, Matthew Feeney. We were on it talking about AI not that long ago, but it's an issue that keeps coming up. Lots of different competing viewpoints to help us with this discussion. We've also brought together the director of comms at the Adam Smith Institute and lead on risk policy, Connor Axiotis. Connor, welcome to your debut on the CapEx podcast. Thank you for coming the 200 meters from your office to our office. We're really grateful for the effort. There's a lot to get into, guys, but I'm going to divide the discussion into kind of two broad halves. The first is about those sort of existential risks that we hear about a lot, some very doom-laden predictions on one side of the debate, others a lot more sanguine. And then we're going to get onto the more kind of crunchy, immediate policy stuff on like, what should we do in terms of regulation? Rishi Sunak is sort of dipping his toe in this stuff at the moment, what the UK should do, what maybe other countries are doing, and what we think the economic consequences will be of this technology in various spheres. Connor, just to kick off, we were saying kind of off mic that, you know, in the right-wing world, you're seen as a bit of a doomster just for wanting any kind of regulation. I mean, where do you see the kind of risk profile of this? And given if we're talking about an existential risk, obviously, it doesn't need to be that high to take it seriously.
1: Yeah. I want to preface this with, I'm super excited about advanced AI. I think this technology could probably and will change the world you know, all the diseases that we are yet to find a vaccine for or cure, these are all just engineering problems, which we just haven't had the time or resources or the kind of intellect to fix yet. Like something like an advanced AI could fix all these things and create ridiculous amounts of economic growth. And we could quell things like poverty, solve issues that we have with our climate. So it's because I'm so excited and that the stakes are so high that I want to take this so seriously. And there's a lot of people in the AI risk community who feel like, unlike other scientific endeavors where you can keep trying and trying again, if we try with something like an unaligned AGI, which isn't acting in our interests, we might only get one shot because once it's gone and it's disempowering people, then we will be able to bring it back and have a second go. So AGI, just in case anyone isn't up to speed with the terminology, is artificial
2: general intelligence. And this is a bit of a debate in itself whether this necessarily will ever actually exist. It will have a kind of human-esque intelligence where it can kind of have its own goals. And, you know,
0: when people use the term AGI, there's also a, you know, other terms like you know, human level machine intelligence, AGI, the term singularity is bounded about. There are technical, I suppose, differences within the definitions, but generally speaking, yes, it's a an artificial, so man-made intelligence with general capacity, which is broadly speaking, the ability to do general tasks. So it's not, you know, we're very used to day-to-day having machines of superhuman intelligence on specific tasks like navigation or playing chess or something. Or but even you, just a, or a calculator. Or calculator, right, right. But really, really, really like directed artificial intelligence, very good at chess, but you can't get a, a chess engine and then tell it to um, make a cup of coffee or to play another board game necessarily or to predict the weather. You know, that's what we're talking about when it comes to AGI kind of the doomiest predictions, the kind of, you know, the world is going
2: to end because of AI are all based on this idea that it will become sort of jargon is agentic. It will have its own mind, basically. Connor, I just want to kind of get back to who is saying what? Because we have people whose names may not be familiar outside the kind of tech space, Like, who's saying what and how do their predictions differ in terms of You know, we have a lot of breathless headlines, sometimes misquoting people saying, humanity's only got two years to live and so on. So where are we at? What are the sort of camps here?
1: I think on the most pessimistic side, you have people like Eliezer Yudkowsky who for the last 20 years has been talking about this as being a real problem. Somewhere on the bullish side that everything's going to be okay, someone called Jan LeCun, who is the chief AI scientist at Meta, and he was one of the three Turing Award winners. For the work on machine learning alongside Bengio and Jeffrey Hinton. Jeffrey Hinton, of which is probably not quite Eliezer level, but still thinks having created like, you know, the foundational models and the transformers which all the large language models are built on right now, Bengio and Jeffrey Hinton are pretty pessimistic. Which, you know, from a public choice theory point of view, you would imagine that these things that they only gain kind of notoriety and fame from producing these systems, they're the same people who this is Dr. Frankenstein coming out and saying, think we've made a bit of a monster here how should we view these sorts of statements in terms of what the speaker's
2: motivations are isn't there a tendency to want to make grandiose predictions we see this all the time especially in the kind of internet era that you only get attention with the most arresting
1: claims so is there something do you think there's something of that going on here as well um perhaps but i think when you're touring around winners and you've been at google for 50 60 years and have the respects that benji and jeffrey hinton have to have like uh, 30 seconds of fame in the newspapers. I'm not sure that's a trade-off that they were thinking about making, but maybe you're right for other people, yeah.
2: With Jeffrey Hinton, for example, I mean, I'm not disputing his expertise for a second. He's clearly like an extraordinarily capable person. The way his his remarks were written up, I thought was a bit misleading because it was like, he's quitting his job because of AI when he's like in his mid-70s. Anyway, I mean, Matthew, when you see the kind of media versions of AI related stuff, should we take some of it with a pinch
0: of salt? listeners should keep in mind that there have been doomsday predictions associated with AI long before the emergence of chat GPT. Uh, and there were even polls right, of AI researchers predicting when will we get AGI, um, when we get there, how bad will it be? There's a cynic in me which might say, well, of course, the people who work in powerful market incumbents have a incentive to tell people it's going to be fine <laughs> because they're, they're working on it. But on the other hand, I think we should keep in mind that the fear we're talking about at the moment is theoretical and there's a significant number of people in the ai field who think we'll never actually achieve this um this by uh, this you mean agi AGI. right or you know a significant number of people who work on it who say when we get there we won't have to worry what i would like to see more of and we haven't seen and i've written about this before is it'd be nice if people had stake in the game if people made actual concrete predictions about what they think how much money they're going to attach to that claim because i think it's unhelpful in the modern media environment where bad news sells and good news doesn't, that we get a lot of unhelpful commentary that isn't tied to a particular stake or prediction. On that point, it's why it's slightly scary that Sam Altman
1: came out in a blog in 2021 and said, this is probably the most dangerous thing humanity is ever going to face. And that's someone with like so much skin in the game that he's maybe got an arm in the game. That's probably why people find it a little bit more concerning.
0: Yeah, for sure. Those who are familiar with regulatory capture will look at him flying around the world, saying that he backs, you know, AI licensure with, as, a, as a little a little strange, but also predictable. I think the best you can say from a sort of bird's eye point of view, as you alluded to earlier, John, is there are a lot of smart, well motivated people who disagree <laughs> about it, and that isn't cause for victory for either side. But I do like to make sure that this debate is put as far as AGI is concerned. I mean, there are a whole host of other AI harms that aren't associated with AGI that we can get into. But this is not climate change. It's not nuclear war. It's theoretical. And I think that we should concentrate very hard on concrete predictions and also try to do a better job of highlighting how we'll know when we have AGI. Because at the moment, I think that's a bit of an open question. You mentioned theoretical
2: predictions. What, in theory, is the sort of, how do we get from A being normality to B, an existential type threat? Is the idea that AI somehow takes over weapons systems? Or how do we get to the idea that it wants to destroy humanity anyway? I think there's a lot kind of baked into
1: that prediction, which is difficult to unpack. I'm not a technical expert on that. But I think one of the failure modes is that these things become very intelligent and these things are given objectives or goals. And alongside having that formal goal, they'll also have things called instrumental goals. And instrumental goals are things that help you with your goal. So John, like your goal today was to turn up to work on time. And an instrumental goal of that was that you should probably get up at a time. You should probably feed and water yourself so that you'd be able to get in for the day. So these kind of instrumental goals and emergent properties are the things that some AI risk people are scared of because they think they're going to be things like resource acquisition. So if you want to hit your formal objective it probably makes sense to have more resources so they think they might become power seeking or this like, there's a lot of technical writing around it which i'm probably not doing justice but that's where their fear comes from but like you said it doesn't even have to get to agi before this thing can become dangerous right when gpt4 came out microsoft researchers wrote like a hundred page thing on on red teaming gpt4 and they got gpt4 to manipulate children into like wanting to commit suicide they also made something like four thousand synthetic bioweapons that had never been made before from stuff that you could find in the kitchen. And there are very real harms now before we even get to this theoretical AGI like Matthew was saying. We did discuss this before, I think, Matthew, but the
2: problem, I think, for the Doom side of things is how you get from something with a capability to sort of physically actioning that
0: in the real world. I don't think it's helpful to think of self-executing autonomous you know, robots like sort of of Terminator or The Matrix or something like yeah. that. Connor alluded to this, which is well-intended people make a cool tool, it unintentionally goes wrong. But there's also the more nefarious, which is bad actors want to wreak havoc and they build their own thing. Um, And this is definitely something in in the context of foreign policy. We have foreign adversaries who would benefit from mass information, disinformation campaigns on social media, propaganda from uh, stoking fear in a targeted population. That is something we've seen before. It's very likely it will happen again. Now, in both of those, whether it is well-intended machines going wrong, or if it's us being under attack from bad actors, I think we shouldn't forget that artificial intelligence is going to be part of our defense against all of this, which is you want the best ammunition when you attack, but you also want your best um, ammunition when you're defending. I worry that sometimes when we think about examples of the creepiness associated with chat GPT or the synthetic weapons that like Connor mentioned, that too many people, um, not necessarily anyone in the room, but There are too many people saying, well, we should chuck this all out and and pause and make sure that the technology is perfect before deployment. But that's not a position I share, because I think there will always be risks associated with technology. AI isn't different in that respect. The more transparent we are about the research and the state of technology, the better prepared we can be when things do go wrong. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
2: I think we should move on from the sort of uh, doomier side of things. We talked a lot about kind of threats to humanity to what this tech can do in the shorter term in terms of, Connor, you mentioned economic growth and how you know exciting that is. You wrote a piece last month in which you drew three conclusions. One was that AI will have superhuman abilities, generality, which means being able to do lots of different tasks, and agency, which is kind of like the AGI thing we were discussing where It can kind of think for itself and have its own goals. The second one which I want to get into is that you think this is going to be different to like the threshing mill or the internet in the sense that it will permanently increase unemployment. I mean, how confident are you on that second one? I think you use the phrase pretty confident. Pretty confident, you know, we should be putting numbers on things, Tetlock style. 60% 60% confident. That
1: yeah, I would uh, say pretty confident is probably like 60 to 70%. So presumably, it's the breadth of what it can do that differentiates it. I work at the Adam Smith Institute. Technological advancements have only been brilliant for mankind. Economic growth, productivity. They've empowered people who weren't empowered before. And I think AI can do the same. So this is what I say about unemployment is we've never had, you know, we've had technologies which have as a supplementary to human labor, made labor more productive, but we've never had a technology that might automate cognitive labor. And not only automate cognitive labor, it might then have agency and be able to make decisions like humans can make, um, which machines haven't been able to yet. So then I was like, if there was a transformative technology which ever created some kind of structural unemployment, sticky unemployment that we couldn't get rid of, this is probably the one that's most likely to lead to that.
2: If we're looking at a world, and you suggest in the blog we will be far richer, and your third conclusion is that we may have to have some kind of universal basic income if A, we're richer and B, there aren't people to do, jobs aren't needed. If you look at very rich people now, they create all manner of other jobs that maybe didn't even exist 50 years ago to service their various slightly artificial needs. And it feels to me as though you only get to a point of, kind of mass unemployment in a world where human beings are satisfied. And we just never are. You look at how most people, they just endlessly create new entertainment, new, you know, whizzy little toys and things like this. Like, if you look at sports, for example, now, 50 years
1: ago, we wouldn't have employed that many people. Now, these are enormous global industries. I do think in the blog as well, I talk about this is like a 10% unemployment rate, enough that the government has to take now.
0: The history of technology is of um, technology replacing human abilities, or at least being superior, right? So, The Industrial Revolution was a revolution in physical labor, that your comparative advantage on a medieval or early modern farm was your ability to wake up, work long hours, lift things, move things with your body. The steam engine, of course, you know, changes the world uh, because of the comparative advantage there. The factory robots don't get tired. You don't have to pay them. They don't form unions, you know, all of these sorts of things. And so I think Khan is onto something on cognitive ability. I mean, most people listening to this podcast, their job requires them likely to spend about eight hours a day sitting in front of some kind of screen using their mental skills to do all different sorts of things. And there's no reason not to think that AI will replace a lot of those kind of abilities, whether it's putting together spreadsheets or reading resumes in HR departments or in labs developing an HIV vaccine or in NASA designing satellites to orbit Europa. You know, all of these sort of things where we thought, well, look, We may not be able to fly, we can make machines to fly, but we have the advantage on design. When I look at the history, though, I think, well, this will just provide another opportunity to use other human comparative advantages. And I think there, as we've mentioned before, it's unclear to me that AI will be replacing a lot of the jobs that require humans to be involved. So for example, therapists, priests, um, football coaches, these sorts of things where people feel like they need to be human to return to one of Connor's earlier points, I think in this field of unemployment, there will be a market for a lot of alignment, like engineers, it will be a full-time job, you'll meet someone in the future at a dinner party, and they might say, oh, so what do you do for a living? And they might say, well, I help align AI, which is I, I sit in front of a screen, probably, and I make sure that AI does what we want it to, to prevent it from killing us all or accidentally turning the earth into, you know, a paperclip factory or whatever it is. Do you know how many alignment researchers we have at the minute, just working on alignment and AI safety? There's 300 and there's 10,000 that work on AI capabilities. That's going to be a field that grows. Yeah. If you asked a farmer in 1830, what are your great-great-grandchildren going to do for a living? We should keep in mind, they wouldn't have even had the vocabulary to say, well, maybe a software engineer or a graphic designer. There's a sort of dose of humility that the history of technology gives you, which is, We probably don't even have the vocabulary to predict what our great-grandkids are going to be doing for a living. But as things stand now, I've yet to see, you know, solid evidence that mass unemployment that justifies a UBI is something to worry about. Yeah. Just on that briefly,
2: Conor, I mean, if it's only 10%, does that justify universal welfare rather than a sort of means-tested thing we have already? Because the fundamental problem with UBI is either it's not basic or it's not universal i.e., if it's only a certain proportion of the population are actually going to need it. And you can tax off the best at your marginal rate or whatever. But I've never seen anyone convincingly square that circle, notwithstanding all the problems with motivation and work and all that thing. So, I mean, how do you approach that?
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, to preface that, if we're in a world where we have an AGI and it's doing a lot of the jobs in the economy that humans formerly did, like, there are a lot of other weird things that are going to be happening. Probably won't be talking about UBI. Like, the price of most things would drop. Yeah, you won't need it because life will be so cheap anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe you just get, uh, you know, the world will be so weird that we'd probably look back talking about, oh, you know, how are are people going to pay for things in just this post-abundant world? So it's like an Aaron Bastani world of uh, super abundant uh, without the communism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without the communism, that would be nice. But yeah, whether it's a negative income tax, let's not get caught having not thought about these ideas more so than wanting them to be implemented now. I just wanted the kind of government to be thinking about this kind of thing.
0: I would certainly agree with that. I, some of the, the thinking and commentary from governments around the world has been, like, quite frankly, just disappointing on, on AI. And I think it's good to think about unemployment and policies to address all of that. My own thought is, well, if we have machines that are very, very efficient in growing the economy, why would we need a UBI if you can, for very little money, just buy a share of a index fund that tracks the global or country's economy, and then just live off that and you know, sit on the beach for months of the year. I don't know. It just seems to me that yielding massive economic growth should supply a degree of yeah, abundance that wouldn't require government intervention.
2: So speaking of government intervention, I just want to kind of finish off by talking about the more immediate term. And there's a lot of talk about regulation, often it's phrased rather vaguely, especially by the kind of people who want the government to get involved in absolutely everything anyway. Let's focus on the UK. I mean, what are we doing and how does a government even regulate a technology like this that is inherently difficult to kind of keep in a box, to keep within
1: your own borders? What's going on in the UK at the moment? Yeah, I think you're right, Don talking about how do you deal with this kind of thing, which is cross-border, which is why I think Rishi went over to the US, asked for an AI summit, and then they're going to bring that back to London. Well, some of the big things with regulation is we want to make sure that companies can be as innovative as possible and create this advanced AI, which can change the world for the better. Like that's what we all want. That's what I really want. And there's a lot of unobtrusive ways of monitoring these systems that we can apply to the biggest models without making them less innovative. So one of them is just having third party auditors go and check systems and see if there are any emergent properties, which they think might pose risks putting more money to AI safety rather than just AI capabilities. But those are kind of the basic things we can do. Um, You want to be as unobtrusive as possible to these firms who are probably going to change the world, but making sure that they're uh, also taking into account the risks.
2: Yeah. I mean, Matthew, I'm going to slightly subtweet our um, boss here, Robert Colville, who was on Twitter this morning saying he's not too confident that the country that gave us the online safety bill and the um, consumer and competition bill is going to be the best place to regulate a technology like this. What do you think about the British approach to AI
0: regulation so far? I thought Rob was correct there. The important thing to keep in mind is this is not a technology that's in a box and we're just waiting for it to erupt. AI is already with us, is also fueling an all manner of different kind of machines and uses and devices. I've said before that I think when you say AI policy, it's kind of like saying electricity policy. I mean, it's something that's in everything. It's not... You can see the government's rhetoric with something like the AI white paper or having, you know, a minister for digital, that the rhetoric seems to be in favor of innovation in tech. But I would argue that Britain's legislative agenda, as well as some of the recent actions of the competition regulator, especially, are just, completely contrary <laughs> to a government that is trying not to frighten away a lot of the world's tech leaders. So yeah, the prime minister in Washington urging for this kind of summit is, yeah, it's not particularly harmful. But I think it's worth keeping in mind that we're a, a relatively small country. The government's R&D budgets last year was about half of what Google's is. As far as scale goes, in order for us to have a comparative advantage in AI policy, I think we need to make sure the country looks attractive for tech investment and tech leadership and something like the online safety bill and the competition bill which threaten massive eye-watering fines is just not going to do it and right now if you're being
1: cynical the reason we even might have a big seat at the table is because google deep minds here if they were to leave then i'm not sure we'd have the same kind of (laughs) the same kind of sway
2: I'm probably more on the uh, gloomy side of things when it comes to tech regulation, having seen what's gone through in the last or what's being proposed at the moment and the reaction of the, particularly among startups, to what the government's already doing. Guys, we could be here all day talking about this stuff. There's so much interesting stuff to get onto. I would just direct listeners to Connor's upcoming paper on AI. Matthew, Connor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you all at home as ever for listening. We've got an excellent set of podcasts coming up in the rest of June. We've got Ben Judah on his new book, This Is Europe. We've got the American political pollster and strategist, Frank Luntz. And we've also got Ollie Franklin Wallace on his new book, Wasteland, which is all about where your rubbish goes. So genuinely excellent program for the rest of the month. Thank you all as ever for joining.